this edition of Create the Village. We're not for profit. We should not be the market leader selling in African-American communities. And we are. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Since 2006, John Callahan has served as the president and I think CEO of Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership, known in the Atlanta area as ANDP, where he leads the organization's policy, lending, and housing development programs. And they're all aimed at ensuring mixed income housing opportunity near job centers across the metro Atlanta area. So that's the primary focus or direction of ANDP in this iteration. Um, And ANDP is currently focused on addressing Metro Atlanta's foreclosure crisis, obviously something that's taken center stage, and the lasting impact of negative equity on neighborhoods. Today, ANDP is one of the nation's largest nonprofit redevelopers of vacant foreclosed homes. Uh, John's nonprofit experience includes time with United Way and the American Red Cross. And he also has a governmental background that includes mayoral appointed positions with the City of Atlanta and elected service on the Fulton County Board of Commissioners and the Atlanta City Council. And I think he also spent 11 years in regional public affairs with Fannie Mae, where we have some common familiarity, even though we're not there. We're not there at the same time. So, John, there's a lot more I could say, but for purposes of this um, interview today, what did I miss that you would want the audience to know going into some questions I'm going to focus you on with respect to what's happening here in the real estate market in Atlanta and with neighborhoods? Well, this year, we're all aware the most important roles are not those. It's, you know, husband, father, brother, friend, and we all share that humanity. To sort of cap it off, what I feel I'm working on, and Egbert, I've learned so much from you, uh, we're in a not-for-profit space, community development space, working uh, to address really systemic race-based patterns that have screwed up some of our neighborhoods. And to do that, trying to figure how do you take the best of not-for-profits, our access to capital, our boards, our community will, and partner with others to develop scale of impact. And for us, like you and others, really there's a supply and demand, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but we are trying to develop affordable units ideally affordable units that can be affordable for a long, long time at scale while we touch people and impact families along the way. So figuring that right mix, those right models as a not-for-profit in this space, because we only are responsible for a portion, is what I'm thinking about and trying to use my background on. Excellent. So, John, let's let's start off with uh, just somewhat of a contextual 
setting and then a question. Certainly, Atlanta is famous for the ebb and flow of its real estate market. People say Atlanta is a real estate town. And while some parts of the metro area are certainly doing well, it seems like we're still feeling the impact of the 2008 foreclosure crisis. In 2010, Metro Atlanta had the third largest or highest rate of foreclosures among the nation's largest metros. And by 2012, it had the highest inventory of government-backed real estate, REO, properties in the country. So I would like you, through your particular lens, if you'd explain through the eyes of Metro Atlanta the impact that the crisis has had on our local economy. Yeah, so we're, you know, the foreclosure rates are obviously down today, but we're, as a community, still recovering. Uh, as you mentioned, Egbert, and you know well, Metro Atlanta was severely impacted. Uh, there, there were reasons about that. We can talk about that. But the impacts were that once stable neighborhoods, largely African-American, more broadly in uh, neighborhoods of color, uh, had severe displacement of homeowners. So those neighborhoods fabric, we always need renters, but you need a mix of renters and homeowners. And those homeowners were pushed out through foreclosure. Many of those homes have been bought by institutional investors that own thousands of properties that aren't local based and have aims that are by right for their profit, but it's no longer do you have the local fabric of a community. And, you know, this year we've talked a lot about the impacts of COVID and health on communities. We all understand that more, but there have been great discussions around systemic practices and systems around race. And I would say those in the real estate sector have, have been among the greatest. And wealth in communities. Unless you're a millionaire, if you're a millionaire, maybe in stocks, maybe something else, but otherwise it's in a home. And that wealth that had been in African-American communities has been particularly stripped out. And there are all kinds, all kinds of consequences to that wealth stripping. Got it. And so, you know, we're in 2020. We obviously have, when the heart of a pandemic and so that dominates the environment and all the conversations today. But the reality is we're still in Atlanta, in, by virtue of your remarks, we're still living in the last crisis <laughs> in some respects as we talk about this issue. So in the wake of the 2008 crash, it was interesting to note that ANDP sort of shifted, it directed all or, or most of its attention to its combating the devastating foreclosure crisis. And you recently produced a report on that period, and you reported findings on nearly 500 home buyers who purchased homes from ANDP in the metro Atlanta region beginning back in 2009. So I'm curious, what is your analysis of why Atlanta was hit so, so hard during the foreclosure crisis? And in retrospect, is there something or anything we should have done differently? Or is Atlanta unique? Well, one of Atlanta's gifts is that it is known as a, a welcoming place. And it became 
really a desired place to move to uh, if you were a person of color, uh, maybe particularly if you were an African-American uh, individual or family member and you came to Atlanta. And it was a great one of the advantages we had is that you could buy a house here at a reasonable price. Uh, but we had many new homeowners right before you know, the foreclosure crisis. So if you were in another community and you had 20 years of appreciation before the fall, you might be less susceptible to foreclosure than if you just bought five or 10 years before the fall. So that may be one of the issues. The other is there had just been discrimination in the finance system. I remember when I took a tour of Atlanta's Pittsburgh neighborhood with some groups that had been active there uh, during the foreclosure crisis said, well, you know, I saw a new building and I saw a lot of good things happening just six months, a year ago. And they said, that was all fraud. People were coming in and doing the exterior, flipping the home, uh, you know, colluding with appraisers and with others. And there was fraud that led to some of the uh, early instances. So learning from the fraud is something we can do next time. There was also a targeting of mortgage products that were not in the best interest of existing homeowners to refinance or new homeowners. And that fraud was particularly targeted on communities of color, which Atlanta and its diversity and its welcoming and as a place to be had a growing percentage of families of uh, color. So it was really a coming together of factors locally there were some things we could control. We found at the start of the crisis that if you lived in a low-income neighborhood, the value of your home might be 50000 but it was being taxed as if it was worth 150000 while you could be in Ansley Park and just have bought a house for a million dollars, but it was taxed as if it was worth 600000 So there were some local taxation policies that were within our control. I think today, uh, regulators, banks, community leaders are paying attention to the mortgage business. There's always risk, but I feel better largely about the products that are being offered. And we're finding today uh, that you know there there are still opportunities for home ownership and investment in communities. So, so John, just following up on that, do you think that the lending community, the underwriters, the appraisers, etc. Do you think they're now more educated about that sliced and diced way in which the bias shows up and are in fact paying attention to correct that as they move forward? Or do you think it's still a steep learning curve and a lot of people need to be understanding how they unconsciously play inside of this pattern of bias? You know, a lot of those decisions have changed. Now there are regulatory ways in which appraisers are selected. So I think the system as a whole, particularly if you are dealing with a bank or uh, a qualified mortgage lending company, that system has improved. What I'm worried about is that there are alternative systems and we need to watch and educate around those alternative systems. Uh, you know, I'd worked at Fannie Mae before you were there, Egbert, 
And it wasn't mortgages that Fannie Mae made that led to the decline. Fannie Mae may have followed the market and may have bought some, some mortgage products it shouldn't, but largely the mortgages that were being made by Fannie Mae and FHA were strong. It was those outside of the system that you know uh, didn't make any economic sense at all, but somebody made money by a fee on the, the mortgage, by the appraisal, by the real estate. And uh, I remember just as a buyer, buying shortly before that time period and having someone I trust in a real estate community tell me, oh, don't worry about that question on the loan application. You don't have to give them the exact right answer. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I do. And we need to get that out and make sure the system works and and, you know, historically, uh, communities of color have been disengaged from the finance system because they haven't been treated well. I think banks, the strong finance system is trying to serve broader markets, but we need to educate and create opportunities for people to connect with a system that is working and not have as an option the system that is predatory. No, that's that's insightful. And, you know, I am I'm glad to hear you say what you said about Fannie Mae and its product, uh, because a lot of people don't do not have an appreciation for the fact that the mortgages that were done or underwritten by Fannie and Freddie actually were pretty solid. But we all know now with in hindsight they made a fundamental mistake putting a lot of stuff on their books that were originated through other underwriting standards and it just created havoc on an otherwise great book of business. It, it, exactly. In fact, I would add, Egbert, today, uh, some of those, the main market may be somewhat too restrictive with 3% interest rates, right? Uh, with less fraud in the system, uh, this is a great chance for people to get home ownership because in Atlanta, there are opportunities to buy a home and have your housing payment less than your rent. Well, if you've been paying your rent, maybe we can change the underwriting. Uh, so in some ways, for the system that's working, I'd like to see that broaden from a credit perspective uh, so that we can get more people into the system. So, John, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that there are companies that are buying a lot of properties in the market. And so what do you anticipate the long-term impact of those institutional buyers to be on the real estate values in Atlanta? Is that still more of, the, of what we've seen in the past? Uh, so when they came in, I was actually excited because we were in neighborhoods that had vacant homes and ne they needed to be occupied. And so you needed capital to refresh the homes and return them. And having some additional perspective, what I'm concerned about is uh, the fact that these institutional investors, once they buy the homes are largely then removed from an opportunity to return to a home ownership tenure because they are part of pools that are not selling through multiple listing service. They're selling in bulk. And the analogy that I use is during recessions, because Atlanta's always had that. Uh, my dad worked in 
in uh, heating and air conditioning, and he worked for Mr. Russell. And so when Mr. Russell was busy, we were busy. When Mr. Russell wasn't busy, we weren't quite as busy. Uh, And during those times, neighborhoods might become more rental. They might be, though, owned by a local doctor or attorney or business person through maybe a Fannie Mae mortgage. They may own eight homes. And then when the market came back and there was capital for somebody to buy that home, that local investor could then sell the home. And so what I'm worried about is long term, we are freezing assets out. They're good operators uh, that manage their properties well, and there are bad operators, but the operators are trying to maximize profits. So we have seen in Atlanta, not only in apartments, but in single family home rentals, that prices are going up way beyond sort of normal you know, inflation and market forces. So we, as a not-for-profit, are trying to step in when investors are selling smaller pools, because we are large enough to buy a 1,000 homes at a time, we are raising capital to buy some of those homes. We, we may have them as affordable rental to begin with, but we could return them to a home ownership tenure over time. Uh, and, and so I am concerned. So, John, so I think you may be leading into something that I have as sort of a next question. I noticed that you're your current focus is on redeveloping homes in gentrifying in-town neighborhoods, as well as some hard-hit suburban areas that are still struggling with depressed home values and disinvestment and, and the high rates of homeowner negative equity that we talked about earlier. Uh, in fact, I was intrigued by your recent announcement of a, I think it's a $438 million plan to produce thousands of affordable housing units over the next five years and it talked about both preservation of homes homes in the form of both apartments and single-family homes so talk to us a little bit about the details of that plan will you be are you co-developing or sponsoring these developments and are you focused on any particular areas of metro atlanta and then as you answer that, what do you need from local governments to make the plan a reality? Because I know it's still in the early stages. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, Egbert, as a not-for-profit, during the, reset, during the uh, last recession, uh, we started our foreclosure work with six homes. And I remember some funders and others saying, why are you working on six homes? And it was, well, we'll serve six families and six streets and six neighborhoods, and maybe we'll learn something and we can expand. So ever since we've been trying to get the good things we do and see if we can bring it to scale. So this fall, we just announced this plan, which is 2,000 units uh, from this year through 2025. 1,250 of the units will likely be apartments predominantly low-income housing tax credit units, and about 750 will be single-family homes, of which over 500 will be initially sold to a homeowner. Egbert, our, our plan is in part us looking at what you've done as a private sector player in community development with values 
of building strong community and asking ourselves, we're not for profit. What's our role? Where do we fill? And our model is a partnership-based model. So for the apartments largely, we are in the midst of raising, we hope, $18 million of one-time charitable donations. Uh, we have received $5 million as sort of a weed gift from one of the affiliated Woodruff Foundation foundations and are going to raise others. For our apartments, we are going to use that charitable dollar to buy land, and ideally to buy land that might not make sense for a private sector deal by itself, could be in a high opportunity area, maybe within walking distance of the Beltline, could be in a school district, could be that we overpay for land even in South DeKalb because there are some amenities and it might not make sense from a numbers standpoint for a 4% tax credit, but if we purchase the land, the, the, the deal might work. And so our goal is to both be in some places that are high opportunity today, but even better, determine what are the places that are going to be high opportunity tomorrow where we can buy at a lower discount. Uh, we will not have to put an option on the land if we have that, you know, no doubt. We have a land bank in Atlanta and Fulton County. We won't have to pay taxes on that land if we hold it. So the goal would be to attract a great private sector developer like y'all or others in the community who have done good work to say, partner with us. We'll own the land. We've got a mission perspective. We'd like to hear your mission perspective. Uh, but we will lease the land for 65 years, 100 years. So it will be affordable forever. And we would, though, like to be a part of the development team. Uh, our partner will have more experience. They would take the financial guarantees, but we'd like to be a part of the development team, uh, receive some of the cash flow from the property, from the developer fee, and create a, a model. In many of those models, you do need uh, to get the best mission some source of public funds. And so the housing opportunity funds that Invest Atlanta has been running, uh, uh, some of the programs from Atlanta Housing, those are all critical, we think, to our success. And of the units we're working on currently, we're working on uh, uh, four low-income housing tax credit projects, uh, one that's leasing up now, uh, one that just closed and two others that have credits but are waiting to close. You know, having that land has been sort of central to us attracting a development partner and getting some of the governmental subsidy. On the single family side, ANDPs become very good at accessing the very few programs that are available for a home ownership subsidy. And they are largely in the U.S. Treasury Department, capital magnet funds, and new markets tax credits, uh, which you're familiar with, can be used for single-family home ownership. To access those funds, you need a capital stack as leverage, and so we will be using that those charitable funds as a capital stack, perhaps as down payment assistance, so we can you know serve lower incomes. And so, really, our charitable piece is the most critical of the financing, but it's only 
of the overall project cost because we do hope to leverage with great partners, with public resources, with tax credits and other things that are more broadly available. So, so John, that's excellent. And obviously, sign me up. Great. We, we, we obviously know that model well, and you know that's the structure of so many of our deals that we've done in partnership with housing authorities. And I think you are onto something there, the site control and the avoidance of the need to pay an exorbitant number for land helps to introduce affordability from the outset and the ability to do the long-term lease means you can preserve that over the long haul. So good vision, absolutely proven way of achieving long-term affordability and, and that will make a difference. So kudos on that. And so, so ANDP um, reported recently one of your reports actually cited research that documented how the racial wealth gap has been growing over the past five decades and has reached a point where we're now 10 to 1 in terms of the wealth of white uh, households to black households. Not surprising there's a gap. Maybe a little less surprising that it's growing, but 10 to 1 is just off the charts. And the report, probably even more staggering, said that in Metro Atlanta, the share of recent black home buyers declined by 50% from 2005 to 2015, the steepest decline in the country. So can you help us understand what the data are telling you and what's happening despite the obvious signs of economic and social progress that we all brag about as happening here in Atlanta? Yeah, so we, we, we have a crisis and, you know, the, so much, I've heard you speak to this before, uh, you know, so much dating back to slavery, uh, the Civil War, Jim Crow sense. Today, the home ownership rate gap between black families and white families is the same as it was in 1968 where the federal government had legal discrimination and the law was changed. And the story I tell, just to simplify what happened, both of my parents grew up in Atlanta. They both rented. My dad rented in a, his family rented a small single family home. My mom's family rented an apartment. Most people rented then. Uh, coming out of the New Deal, coming out of World War II, there were a lot of veterans, and my dad served in World War II. As a veteran, he was entitled uh, to VA, low-cost mortgage, low-cost down, uh, and he bought a home for $5,000. He bought a home after that, and a home after that. He's 94 years old. He is still living off of that wealth. That wealth got me to Georgia Tech. If you were an African-American veteran uh, or an African-American trying to access one of the other federal programs, the federal law was that we are not going to approve a loan in a neighborhood that has even one family of color. And so you could not buy a home anywhere because you would be that family of color. And so from a generational standpoint, that wealth wasn't created. Uh, and the 94-year-old and passed on to the 62 and 
passed on down. And we're just continuing uh, to see, you know, some of uh, the damages of that wealth gap. There's a lot of talk about income and wage gaps, and those are very important. Uh, but wealth is such a determinant of success in our society. And so when you layer on top of that some of the tax policies, I talked about, well, we are overtaxing African-American neighborhoods. And this is a government that is majority African-American. So I'm not saying it's intentional, but it damn happened. And you overlay on that, the fraud was perpetrated in Pittsburgh community, but maybe wasn't perpetrated in a similar white neighborhood. And that some of the access to banks and financial institutions is uh, still not there, even though the banks are opening up and trying to get capital out because there's a lack of trust. And then finally, because of accelerating home prices, you know, if you don't have much wealth and there's an income gap too, so you're a family of color, you can't afford a really expensive home. And right now, uh, it's hard to build homes under $180,000. We as a not-for-profit are the number one producer of quality rehabbed or new construction for sale homes in, you know, sort of South Metro Atlanta from the center of I-20 South. We're not-for-profit. We should not be the market leader selling in African-American communities, and we are. Uh, so we need a plan to address this racial-based home ownership gap. Uh, within the city of Atlanta, uh, we are seeing that the housing opportunity bond is moving forward. Uh, Not-for-profits had asked for a not-for-profit set-aside because sometimes our model is different than other buckets, and uh, that has been increased to 15%. Uh, what I would add, though, is some special emphasis in the city of Atlanta needs to be given to increasing home ownership opportunities uh, for low-income families with particular focus on uh, communities of color that have been left out to suburban communities. And Atlanta is very aware, uh, Atlanta should be very aware that 90%, the actual stat is 88% of our poverty is not in the city of Atlanta, it is in the suburbs. So our approach in Clayton can be different than our approach in Gwinnett, but all of the suburban governments need to follow the lead of the city of Atlanta. And when they uh, have economic development projects using tax increment financing, uh, we call them tax allocation districts here, affordable housing needs to be a component of that. They need to follow Atlanta's lead and do a housing opportunity bond or some other force of dedicated funding, uh, those public investments can be leveraged 10, 15 fold by new markets tax credit, capital magnet funds, low income housing tax credits. But absent that seed capital from local governments, it's going to be hard. And in the suburban areas, prices aren't sky high yet. Gentrification's around the corner, but maybe not here. And uh, I think those governments working with Atlanta Regional Commission, which has taken affordable housing as one of their lead issues, are going to have to respond 
uh, sooner rather than later with funding sources uh, to address the problem. So the suburban communities need to take the lead, follow the lead of Atlanta, both in what Atlanta did right and what it did wrong. They can learn from that and the seed capital to sort of kick off some of the opportunity to leverage capital and get 10 and 15-fold multiple on it to advance the affordability solutions is critical. Uh, but you did mention in earlier part of your remarks about South Cab. Can you do a, without getting into risky territory, do the South the Cab, not the Cab? What, what are you saying when you made that observation and cited South the Cab specifically? So ANDP serves the 10-county Atlanta Regional Commission area, but because of the foreclosure crisis since 2007, we have been focused on those zip codes that had the highest foreclosure rates. So we have been actively involved in South DeKalb and had noticed that in Atlanta there were lots of exciting housing announcements. Uh, you were involved in one in North DeKalb, and so we decided to really focus in the largely single-family neighborhoods of South DeKalb. As we look at ourselves as an organization and try to be more inclusive. One thing ANDP's always been focused on is uh, sort of Atlanta's black and white. We were formed from a predominantly white chamber of commerce and predominantly uh, black city of Atlanta political leadership when Hattie Dorsey was our uh, founding uh, president and CEO. But today, Atlanta is much more diverse. And we've got to be thinking about DeKalb. We've got to be thinking about what's going on with uh, uh, new populations in North DeKalb. North DeKalb's near job centers than South DeKalb may be. And uh, actually, we need to learn from y'all and others how we can grow our mission beyond just the geographies we've been consistently involved in for our 30-year history and, and serve more broadly. Uh, the the region needs to be diverse in all counties and all sub-geographies. John, uh, <clears throat> as revealing as it is, it's both depressing and at the same time uh, pointing to opportunity, but it, it continues to be a heavy lift. We obviously know NDP's work and appreciate that you are a market leader, whether reluctantly or feeling at the same time that you shouldn't have to be. The fact is you have been and you have taken it on yourself to sort of drive in that direction. And we need a lot more ANDPs because of the size of the problem. But I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your time this morning, the insight that you provided on this subject. I think it should be enlightening to a lot of listeners because there's the mystique of Atlanta is this and Atlanta is that, but there's a drilling down to understanding both the crises and the opportunities that are localized that we need to be focused on. So yeah, I, I just want to say thanks, Egbert. We as a not-for-profit and there are other not-for-profits that are also growing their wor work 
uh, have a great responsibility. But at the end of the day, the private sector uh, is going to meet most of this need. And Atlanta is blessed by having you and some other private sector leaders who found ways to build strong businesses, but strong businesses that have values that lift communities. And uh, I think that is one of the things that makes Atlanta so special. Uh, so thank you for what you and all your colleagues at Integral uh, do every day. All right. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of the Integral Group, LLC. Copyright, The Integral Group. Thank you.